Hi everyone, welcome to Unlocking Mindset. I'm Jennifer Zock, and today I'm speaking with Wendy Bittner. Wendy is a partner in the organization Cultivating Leadership. Wendy believes passionately in the potential of everyone to grow and flourish. She also believes strongly that as our world and our place in it become increasingly more precarious and complex, we as humans need every bit of the potential we have and can nurture. To get this, we need leaders who bring not only the best of themselves, but who create the condition for those around them to thrive. This is the work that Wendy cares about, helping leaders and teams to make sense of the complexity around them and to develop the means to think, act, and engage in ways that exceed the demands of our increasingly complex world. Wendy first encountered complexity from the scientific side while getting her PhD in inorganic chemistry at Caltech. From there, she became a consultant at McKinsey & Company where she gathered deep experience of the complexity of the business world and the many ways in which we as humans are ill-equipped to handle it. Today, as a partner at Cultivating Leadership, Wendy serves a range of clients from nonprofits to commercial banking, from small startups to tech giants. She does a variety of work from coaching to team interventions to leadership programs, but always at the critical intersection of complexity and human capabilities, helping her clients to grow into and thrive as their biggest selves. When not following the nomadic lifestyle of a leadership development practitioner, Wendy has the good fortune to live in Northern California wine country. Her passions outside of people development include cooking elaborate meals for friends, baseball, full disclosure, she's a Dodgers fan, games, and all kinds of wine. Here's Wendy. Welcome, Wendy. Thank you for joining us for Unlocking Mindset. You're welcome, Jennifer. It's lovely to be here. I'd like to start off with how you and I connected. We connected through Jennifer Garvey Berger's book, Unlocking Leadership Mind Traps. And you mentioned that you've been teaching and working with mind traps since the book was in draft form. Can you walk us through that a little bit, please? Sure. Um, so I've been working with Jennifer now for, oh boy, probably the last almost 10 years. Um, I started actually as a client of hers um, when she and Keith Johnson were still writing Simple Habits for Complex Times. And I had um, Cultivating Leadership come into my little firm at the time to help our leadership team really begin to grapple with the ideas of complexity. Um, and after I left that firm, I ended up joining Cultivating Leadership uh, because I found the work so powerful. And about uh, three years or so into my tenure there, Jennifer started a new book thinking about, okay, so we've been talking about complexity for quite a long while, but as we observe leaders, as we observe leaders in action, um, she started to notice that there were all these ways that we seem to be kind of biologically wired to do exactly the wrong thing <laughs> when facing <laughs> a complex challenge. And so over a couple of years, uh, she worked on 
what are the patterns that she notices and that we all noticed in the way that leaders know that we ought to do a certain thing and then actually find ourselves doing this other thing? What are those mm-hmm. patterns and how could we, was there a way that we could begin to make sense of those? And if we were able to, how could having a kind of map of those traps that we find ourselves falling into almost biologically, in fact, a lot of this is based right on neurobiology, um, how could we keep ourselves out? Um, So she started work on the book. She drafted several versions. One of the glorious things about uh, working with cultivating leadership is that we get a chance to see things early and try things out right away. One of the things we preach in a way inside of complexity is to experiment and learn and try things out and see how they resonate. And so I got a chance to start working with this idea of mind traps with one of our big clients um, several months before the final final manuscript went to print. Okay. Can you tell us some of the things that you experimented with and the lessons that you learned? Yeah, so um, a couple of things. So people who are listening to this might know that the five mind traps from Jennifer's book um, are rightness, control, agreement, simple stories, and ego. Um, And a couple of the things we played around with in those early days as we were experimenting with clients were you know, what's really the difference between rightness and simple stories, for instance? How do we know? Like, what what is this? What do these two things mean? And so we were able to experiment with some of the ideas associated with what differentiates these particular traps. In the case of rightness, um, the neurobiology behind the mind trap of rightness is that it turns out we feel right before knowing we're right. So our sense of feeling right is actually an emotion. Um, and it turns out that we, we have the sense of rightness first, and then we backfill the story and create the logic in our minds that makes that sense resonate. Now, it turns out a lot of times we are right. We're not always wrong, of course. Right. And, but the feeling comes first. And so when we, when we experience that feeling, we're really experiencing an emotion. Whereas with simple stories, what we're talking about there is the way that our problem solving nature looks for narrative and shortcuts. How do we create shortcuts out of all of the information that comes to us in order to be able to communicate with each other, to be able to make quick decisions, to be able to say, this is this way and that's another way. So we look for beginnings and middles and ends. We create narrative like a Hollywood movie. Um, We look for villains and heroes in our stories um, and often label ourselves and others that way. Um, So we got to experiment in those early days with really teasing apart what you know, feel like similar traps when you just say their names and how are they kind of different from each other? So it's fun. Yeah, it sounds very fun and very interesting. What are some of the ways out of these traps? Yeah, the fun part is there, 
just lots of different ways to get out of these traps um, <laughs> and to even begin to see ourselves falling into them. Um, one of the fun parts about these mind traps is that none of us is immune. Mm. I say that's fun. Sometimes that doesn't feel fun. But the glorious part is that they are just part of being human. Our, we are wired to fall into these and they're really useful in a simpler world, in a place where we can predict, plan, and control, where uh, we can look ahead and know what's coming, then, you know, being right's a good idea. You know, we don't want to, if we know it's coming, it doesn't make any sense to get it wrong. Um, simple stories, agreement, all of these are traps that we fall into. All of us do. Even mm -hmm. when we've studied them for a few years, even when complexity is our uh, kind of tied up in the way we work, we all still fall into them, including I do. So the fun part is we're all in them sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the best ways to get out is to think about changing our questions. So for instance, how, how many of you who are listening frequently asked yourself, how could I be wrong about this? What do I believe and how could I be wrong? That's just not something we do, right? And, mm -hmm. right? and, you know, when things are predictable, when we can see our way forward, it might even be a waste of time to ask ourselves that. And yet so many of the things that we, that we face these days are simply not in our control. They're not predictable. And the way we need to be moving is to notice what's happening around us right now and to feel our way forward, to try a thing, see what happens, make an adjustment, amplify the things we like and dampen the things we don't. When we get stuck in these traps, we prevent ourselves from moving. And so we need to change our questions. So for instance, um, I asked, how could I be wrong? That's a great way to get out of the rightness trap. Mm -hmm. For control, a question we might ask instead of, we frequently tend to ask the question, how do I prevent bad things from happening? This is a great question for the predictable world where we know what the right answer is and we can see all the wrong answers and we can create rules and constraints that keep us from doing the wrong things. But in, the, in complexity where we can't know the right answer, it doesn't help to do that. We just pile on more and more and more rules and people often don't follow them anyway and then we end up getting perverse outcomes. So in, in complexity, a great question to ask to get ourselves out of the control trap is what can I enable or what could help enable me? So rather than trying to prevent bad things, what can we do to amplify good things? And there are questions like that for each of them. For you know, simple stories, I might ask, how is this other person a hero? When Joe walks into the meeting and irritates me for the 28th time in a row, and I think, oh, Joe is just <laughs> like that. He's an idiot, right? Very rarely does Joe wake up in the morning thinking, wow, my goal today is to irritate Jennifer. I, I'm hoping to do that. No, he wakes <laughs> up and he says, I hope I can do this, that I can bring into the world what I want to bring into the world. And most of us, most people, most of the time are really trying. So we can ask instead of why is Joe such a pain in the neck? I can ask, how's Joe a hero in his own story? How is he seeing this? That makes it completely reasonable that he would be asking those questions. 
That's a great point and really is a good example of assuming good intent. You know, people are most of the time doing the best that they can. And you're right. You know, Joe is not waking up with the intent (laughs) of seeing how he can annoy you. Yeah. So, Yeah. yeah, that question is a good way to really stop and think and attempt to put oneself in the other person's shoes. Yeah. And I love all. Yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say, add that, you know, we we are all perfectly imperfect. (laughs) Indeed. Indeed. And, you know, I just loved something else that you said um, in terms of, you know, the, the ego and being right and you know something that i often think about you know what's more important to be right or in right relationship with people Mm, yeah yeah that one is, is powerful like how do we how do we be in relationship because that's really what it's all about. And, and a lot of, you know, what I'm hearing you say here is about being, being present. Mm-hmm. So much when we're thinking so much about the future that pulls us out of the present, when we think about when we're stuck in the past, that also takes us out of the present. Our, really, our power is... And our power of control is within the present. Yeah, absolutely. And we talk about this in complexity um, work quite a lot, that Uh cultivating our capacity to pay attention to now, what's actually happening now, um, rather than telling stories of the future or telling stories of the past, exactly like you say, we get so caught up in what we've already experienced or what we think is going to happen. And we simply can't know when things are unpredictable. And so how do we pay attention to what actually is happening? There's another fascinating thing that you said there about in relationship. You know, one of the mind traps that Jennifer writes about is the mind trap of agreement. And we, we, um, you know, we evolved as creatures who need belonging and connection. As she often says, you know, we don't have fangs. We run slower than most of our predators and our prey. We need each other in order to survive um, in this world. We we always have. Um, And so we we have grown to need belonging and connection and agreement, agreeing with each other is one of the strongest ways that we can satisfy that need. Um, And so we are wired to want to agree. And what that means is that, I mean, it's so powerful that actually, um, as Jennifer describes, if if you put somebody in an MRI machine and have them feel excluded, kind of exclusion or social pain, it mm-hmm. actually shows up in your brain exactly like physical pain. Um, yes, <laughs> I've heard that. Yeah, that is amazing. Yeah. 
Yeah, which is just wild to me. And so it's not surprising that we are wired to agree because if it's actually painful to be in conflict, um, then no wonder we stay away from that. And so what we tend to do is we either, this one's a kind of funny one, we either go along to get along. So we, we you know, um, compromise in ways that actually compromise the outcomes we get. Um, or sweep things under the rug, that kind of, we don't, uh-huh. we don't do conflict here, we sweep it under the rug, uh-huh. or completely on the other side, if we cannot compromise, we actually polarize and exclude each other from our, uh, from our circles. So, you know, if I can't find a way to compromise with you, I say, fine, you are other, I am, you're not in my tribe anymore, I don't need to agree with you, and I won't agree with you. So we we do both of those moves and both of those catch us in the agreement trap when what we could be asking is how could this conflict actually deepen our relationship? How could the fact that we don't see the same thing in the same way actually help us find a new way forward, help us to innovate, help us to adapt, help us to go even deeper? Um, in our relationship with each other. And that question takes a lot of courage because it admits not knowing. Yep. And it also, um, you know, something that a question that I find helpful to, to ask myself is, you know, how might I be wrong or listening like I, I could be wrong. When you listen that way, you you hear, you listen, it's a different way of listening and you hear a different message. Yeah, absolutely. And when you do um, that idea, we often talk about this idea of listening to learn rather than mm-hmm. listening to or to fix. And mm-hmm. you can see even in that little story you just told about how you hold this idea of agreement and this way of listening, you can hear a little bit of rightness. How could I be wrong? You can hear a little bit of agreement. You know, what, how, how could we disagree with each other and be okay? You can also hear a little bit of ego and identity in there around, wait a minute, who am I? If, if I open myself up to being wrong in this way, what does that mean for me? Um, And all of those there's a reason that those feel uncomfortable. We are wired to be right and to want to be right. And so you're right. It takes a lot of courage um, and trust uh, in the in the person, in the people that you're with to say, I'm going to open myself up to the possibility that I am not right or don't have the full story here. Yes, a lot of trust is is very true. And I want to go back a moment to what you said about the question, what can I enable? And I'm wondering if you can share perhaps a story with us of either yourself or someone else asking that question. Sure. So I can, uh, I can try a couple. One of them starts right back in the middle of cultivating leadership. Um, A few years ago, we were a tiny firm of about 10 people. That's about how many of us there were here when I joined. 
Um, and most of those people were in New Zealand and a couple of us were in the United States. Um, and then all of a sudden uh, we had this big growth spurt because um, we were invited into a very big new client relationship. And we looked at each other and we said, it would be a good idea if there were more of us to support this client. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, um, quite quickly, we doubled in size. And we went from a fairly localized place to uh, a firm who had colleagues all over the world. We're now at about 55 people from uh, basically every continent. Um, not wow. Antarctica. Um, but we are quite, we span all the time zones and um, our firm has just gotten bigger. And there was a moment in time when we on the leadership team said, started to, to think, geez, we need to protect our brand and we might need some rules and we might need to be thinking about how do we show up consistently to clients and who are we even as a firm? What are all the regulations we need to enact? Um, and we started, we sat down um, in Jennifer's living room in New Zealand at the time and started thinking about what are all the risk mitigation strategies we need to be thinking about as we have spread around the world. Um, and then we paused and we said, wait a minute. <laughs> Maybe we're doing ourselves exactly what uh, we would counsel clients not to do, which is to try to control what is fundamentally a complex situation. And so we thought, okay, what's the alternate strategy here? And we looked to our own teaching and said, we would ask people to say, what could we enable? So the thing about complexity is you don't want to have no boundaries. You do need to set some boundaries because humans, we we need to have a sense of where the edges are so that we know where the dragons really live and where the unsafe spaces really are. You need some boundaries, but we think about it as enabling constraints. And our friends at Liberating Structures um, created a tool based out of engineering, actually, called MinSpecs, Minimum Specifications. And we decided all right, what are the very minimal set of rules or boundary conditions that we would need in place as cultivating leadership in order to maximize the chances of enabling what we wanna have happen in the world? Um, wanting to be a thriving collective of skilled practitioners working together to support our clients um, in the world of complexity. And so instead of creating a long list of rules, we laid out what are all the things we think we need to do? What are all the rules we think we might wanna have in place? And then we went through them one at a time and said, could we imagine enabling what we wanna have happen in this world if we did the opposite of that rule? And anytime we said yes, we crossed it off the list and we got down to six. So our, our, set of enabling constraints or minimum specifications is six things. And our entire 50 person firm runs on six rules as of recently. So that's an example, six easy rules about what is and isn't 
um, you know, what's kind of out of bounds and what's in bounds and anything else is in bounds. Can you share what those six rules are? <laughs> I knew you were going to ask me that. Let's see if I can rattle. Them. <laughs> I'm curious. <laughs> um, so, and we have recently been working on updating them because this particular set of six is now several years old. So is it still oh. fit for purpose is a question. Um, right. So my colleagues who are listening, forgive me if, we, if I'm quoting an old one. Than an <laughs> one. Um, but here's some examples of what they are. Um, so the first one is cultivators. That's the name for our leadership team. We have weird names mm. for you. Cultivators decide who is in CL. So the leadership group decides who is part of the collective, um, which also infers that we decide who's not. So we set that boundary. Uh, the second one is that any work that CL people do is CL work. So that might not make sense on its surface, but one of the rules we started playing with was what happens if somebody joins our collective who does work that's different than what we think we do? You know, what happens if somebody's more focused on um, sort of executive search as opposed to executive development, which is mostly what we do? And we started, we were having these long discussions about, you know, do we need to control what kind of work, you know? What happens if people don't do the same kind of complexity work that we do and blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden we realized, actually, it doesn't matter. We don't have to set a rule for that. If we, if we think that you belong in our collective and you enhance what we might be able to do, then we believe that the work you do fits. So <laughs> whatever you do is CL work. Um, and that just released so much tension and strain in our system at the time. Oh, I bet A third you one know that, that control. <laughs> it's really not worth all the energy we spend on it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Right. Control is one of those ones that wastes so much energy. Mm-hmm. We, uh, we see this in, with clients all the time, you know, setting KPIs and OKRs and performance targets. And Sometimes those things are helpful, right? If you're mm-hmm. running, if you're running a factory line, if you're running a manufacturing line, and you need to churn out, you know, hundreds of thousands of the same widget each day, or a car, you know, the same car on the production line, targets, OKRs, performance standards, really, really, really helpful to be more efficient, ensure that things meet safety standards, etc. But when we're talking about something that's complex, like helping leaders learn how to be more high functioning and complexity, having an OKR is not helpful. When we're talking about culture metrics, having an OKR or a key performance indicator or a scorecard about that with targets that I am supposed to meet actually tends to push us to waste so much time trying to meet targets that eventually get us um, unintended consequences, right? If I say that Jennifer tells the story about call centers, I set a target, my customers are unhappy because they're spending too much time not getting what they need on the phone. So we realized that a lot of customers are waiting for three minutes or more Mm -hmm. to 
get their questions answered. So I set a target for my call center employees that says you must have folks off the phone within two minutes of their call. Then all of a sudden, people start saying, I'm sorry, I can't help you. You're going to have to hang up and call back later and hanging up the phone. (laughs) Right now, all of a sudden, our wait time is down to a minute and a half, but our customers are actually more angry than they were to begin with. (laughs) So sorry, I've gotten, uh, I've gotten carried away there, but yes, control is one of those ones where we spend so much energy and effort trying to get things right and end up getting exactly what we did not hope for. And it perhaps, you know, worked really well with, you know, you know, th- those kinds of metrics, they not perhaps they do in yeah. work that is repetitive in nature. However, yeah. the more we are complex people in a complex world, which means we're not dealing with repetition. We're dealing with dynamic. Yeah, that's right. Dynamic change. And we really were finding our our way through this. We really don't have, um, you know, a guide per se. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And in the world of complexity, we just don't know. And we get tricked because we look back and we we can look back and kind of reconstruct after the fact what the chain of cause and effect was. You know, I can look back at my call center. We, we might eventually look back at this pandemic and say, ah, here are the things that exacerbated it. And here are the things that um, got it under control. And we look backwards and say, oh, we ought to have known beforehand, but we just mm-hmm. don't. And when people are involved, we can't. So sometimes in the call center, it might be true that setting a target of lower wait times is a great idea for a little while, but assuming that's always going to work and that that's going to be transferable everywhere without paying attention to what's actually happening around that target um, traps us. I know that story well, because in my early on in my career, I was a telecommunications analyst in call centers. So I, I know the metrics well, the service level, the uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> all of those benchmarks and how they can be used and how sometimes they were misused. Yeah. Yeah. Almost all of them were born out of a great idea or out of a place where, yeah, it totally worked this time. Yeah. But this that's- time. That's the big word. (laughs) And we're changing so quickly that, you know, this time there's a lot of distance (laughs) between this time and last time. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes that's just hard for us to get our head around, right? Like we are, we, we get a lot as humans because we can use our experience and project into the future what we think ought to happen. We're the only species that can do that. But we just, it's helpful for us to notice that when we do that, it's a guess. (laughs) And if we can hold that prediction lightly, we're gonna be so much more capable of adapting and recognizing, ah, 
this time, that wasn't the right thing to do. So I might need to do something else. But we can't I do really, that if we can't admit that we're wrong. Right. <laughs> I really like what you said about holding on unlikely. That's something that I I use a lot in my own life is remember to hold on lightly, not tightly. Mm, beautiful. Yeah. Uh, and you know, as for people, I think one of the hardest things for us is, is giving up control. But when we give up control, we really gain control. Yeah. And it, you know, Jennifer, it's hard for a reason. It turns out that our sense of being in control is physiologically tied to feeling happy. People are healthier, literally, when they feel like they have control. So we're not mm-hmm. advocating that you feel out of control 100% all the time. Mm-hmm. And what, what I would say is, one, know when you can and can't have control. So certainly when you can, yeah, be in control, right? I. I don't need to guess about how to brush my teeth each day. I don't need to guess about how to drive from here to there. Um, So, you know, there are certain places where it's very useful to maintain control. If I run a factory line, I don't need to guess. If I'm, you know, writing a run sheet for a program I'm about to teach, you know, eventually I can make a decision and be in control. So do that when we can. But when it's fundamentally unpredictable, we try to control and get even more frustrated and even more upset because we feel like we ought to have been in control or somebody ought to have and and nobody's getting it right. Well, if we could learn to redefine even what we mean by control in those complex situations, it can really help. So, um, I think that's a good point to redefine control. And when you mentioned, you know, our tendency to go to, you know, who ought to have been in control, Mm -hmm. that's judgment. (laughs) Yes. And if you think you don't do that and you're listening, (laughs) believe me, you do. (laughs) We all do it. And, you know, the way out of judgment is curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, how might we ask that same thing from a point of curiosity rather than control? Yeah. Fabulous. And, you know, much like we did with our minimum specifications exercise, you can ask what really cannot happen rather than trying to control for what we want to force to happen. How can we ask what absolutely truly can't happen? Like what would be really unsafe? Okay, let's make sure we don't do that. But as long mm-hmm. as we stay inside that boundary and we've set our boundary, that's a control we can have. Like what are the boundaries? Who will be part of this conversation and not? Who will be um, a, a decision maker and who will be an advisor. Those are boundary setting moves that we can make. We can change those boundaries and then, and then we can let go of whatever happens inside those boundaries. So do any work you want. If you join cultivating leadership and we'll let you, you know, we'll talk to (laughs) each other about what we're learning from that, but you don't need to worry about getting it right. 
That's a very freeing statement. (laughs) (laughs) I like what Brene Brown says about, I'm here to get it right, not be right. Mm, Lovely. Yes. And that, yeah, speaks right to it, right? That this, uh, listen, how many times can I say right in one sentence? <laughs> but it speaks right. Yeah. And you know, I have, I have found that people really, they love to hear that they're right. So, you know, in, in a conversation, if, you know, what they've, they've you know, something they, they've said um, is true and right, if you preface, you know, you, you're right. Um, mm-hmm. People really, you know, open up mm-hmm. to that, that statement. Mm-hmm. It's meeting a need. Mm-hmm. It does. It feels good. That, that emotion of feeling right gives mm-hmm. us a little hit of, um, yeah. I think, dopamine. <laughs> Let me get. Yes, I it is. Yeah. The wrong one, but there we go. Dopamine. Uh-huh. It feels good. It's like feeling happy or yeah. feeling content. And, um, and so that's great. There's nothing wrong with that emotion. It's a great emotion and it's really helpful to know that it's an emotion. Yeah. And it's, you know, the thing is just learning to be okay Mm -hmm. in those times when, when we're not right, because no one is really ever percent ever 100% right or 100% wrong, especially in places where there might not actually be a right. (laughs) Right. Right. Uh Where there might Uh not be a right. um, There's, there's kernels of truth. I find it really helpful to, to think and think in terms of truth um, versus, you know, right and wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Fabulous. So, and, and sometimes there, even then I ask, what's my truth? What's your truth? What? And sometimes that depends on what are the boundaries we're drawing around our situation. So, um, and it and sometimes on- we have to have, you know, hard and fast rules about yep. what is right and what is wrong, yep. um, you know, for safety measures. Absolutely. Um, my colleague Keith talks about an experience um, when he worked for the Department of Conservation in New Zealand where people were killed because a viewing platform was built incorrectly. And um, he was put in charge of overseeing the aftermath and he's never forgotten that. And it's, a, it's an example of one of those places where um, it's a knowable thing. It's a predictable, knowable thing to build a viewing platform. We, there's engineering involved, there's science involved, and there are certain sets of rules we can follow that would enable, um, maximize the safety of, uh, of something like that. We see that in um, flight preparation checklists and surgery checklists and mm-hmm. places where um, we know we can put some boundaries in place and say, if we follow these rules, um, we are going to maximize the chance for safety here. And those are places where you want to get it right. Right. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, Wendy, thank you so much for all of the insight that you've shared with us today. Can you tell us how people can get their hands on Jennifer's book, 
unlocking leadership mind traps, how they can follow and stay in touch with you. Yeah. So Jennifer's book is available on Amazon. Um, so if you have a look on Amazon, you can find it. Um, unlocking leadership mind traps. Um, you can also find us at cultivatingleadership.com or you can follow Cultivating Leadership on Twitter um, at Leadership Grows. Um, and you can find me on uh, the Cultivating Leadership website. That's probably the easiest place. Um, you can also follow me on LinkedIn. I am Wendy Bittner. All right, everyone. I hope you took in as much as I did from that conversation with Wendy. Practice freeing yourself from mind traps by changing your questions. What can I enable? What can I enable? Stay present, listen to learn, and until next time, thanks for listening. I'm Jennifer Zock, and this is Unlocking Mindset.